Chapter 6 A Memory for Forgetting. Maiso sont les neiges d'Anton. Francois Villon. I have a grand memory for forgetting, David, remarks Alan Bruck in Kidnapped. He speaks for all of us. Our fond memories are the dregs left in the wine glass, the dehydrated sediments of perceptions whose flavor has gone. I hasten to add that there are, of course, exceptions to this. Memories of almost hallucinatory vividness of scenes or episodes which have some special emotional significance. I shall call this the vivid fragment or picture strip type of memory, as distinct from abstractive memory, and come back to it later in this chapter. Abstractive memory. The bulk of what we are able to remember of our own life history, and of the knowledge we have acquired in its course, is of the abstractive type. Take a simple example. You watch a television play. The exact words of each actor are forgotten by the time he speaks his next line, and only the meaning remains. The next morning, you only remember the sequence of scenes which constituted the story. After a year, you only remember that it was about a tangle between two men and a woman on a desert island. The original input has been stripped, skeletonized. Similarly, with books one has read, and episodes one has lived through, as time passes, memory is more and more reduced to an outline, a condensed abstract of the original experience. The play you saw a month ago has been abstracted by a series of steps, each of which condenses particulars into more generalized schemata. It has been reduced to a formula. The playwright's imagination made an idea branch out into a structure divided into three acts, each divided into scenes, each consisting of smaller divisions, exchanges, phrases, words. Memory formation reverses the process, makes the tree gradually shrink back into its roots, as in a trick film played backward. The word abstract has, in common usage, two main connotations. It is the opposite of concrete, in the sense that it refers to a general concept rather than a particular instance, and in the second place, an abstract is a summary or condensation the essence of a longer document, such as civil servants prepare for their superiors. Memory is abstractive in both senses. This is, I have already said, not the full story. If it were, we should be computers, not people. But for the moment, let us consider this abstractive mechanism a little further. Memory formation is a process continuous with perception. It has been said that if a visitor wanted to see Stalin, he had to pass through seventeen gates from the outer Kremlin gates to the door of the innermost sanctum, and at each successive gate he was submitted to a more thorough screening. We have seen that the sensory intake is subjected to a similar scrutiny before being admitted to awareness. At every gateway of the perceptual hierarchy it is analyzed, classified, stripped of all detail that is irrelevant for the purpose in hand. We recognize the letter R written in almost illegible scrawl as the same thing, as a huge printed R in the newspaper headline, by a scanning process which disregards all details as relevant and only retains the basic geometrical R design, the Rness of the R, as worth signaling to higher quarters. The signal can then be encoded in a kind of simple morse. It contains all the information that matters. It's an R in condensed, skeletonized form, but the wealth of detail, of course, is lost. The scanning process is indeed the exact reverse of the triggering process. Even those few among the multitude of stimuli constantly impinging on our senses, 
which have successfully passed all screenings and thus achieved the status, a consciously perceived event, must usually submit to a further rigorous stripping before the deemed worthy to be admitted to a permanent memory storage, and with the passing of time, even the skeletonized abstract is subject to further decay. Anybody who tries to write a detailed chronicle of his doings during the week before his last must be painfully surprised at the rate of decay, and the amount of detail irretrievably lost. This impoverishment of lived experience is unavoidable. It is partly a matter of parsimony, although the storage capacity of the brain is probably much greater than most people make use of in their entire lifetime, but the decisive fact is that the processes of the generalization and abstraction imply by definition the sacrifice of the particulars, and if, instead of abstracting universes like R or tree or dog, memory were a collection of all particular experiences of R's and trees and dogs, a store of lantern slides and tape recordings, it would be completely useless, since no sensory input can be identical in all respects with any stored slide of recording. We would never be able to identify an R or recognize a dog or understand a spoken sentence. We could not even find our way through the immense store of particularized items. Abstractive memory, on the other hand, implies a system of stored knowledge, hierarchically ordered with headings, subheadings, and cross-references, like the entries in the thesaurus of the subject catalog of a library. Some volume may be got into the wrong place, and some flashy jacket designs might stick out and catch the eye, but on the whole the order holds. Speculative view. Fortunately, there are compensations for the unavoidable impoverishment of the livid experience in the abstractive process. In the first place, the scanning process can acquire a higher degree of sophistication through learning and experience. To the novice, all red wines taste alike, and all Japanese males look the same. But he can train himself to superimpose more delicate scanners on the coarser ones. As Constable trained himself to discriminate between diverse types of clouds, classified them into subcategories. Thus we learn to abstract finer and finer nuances, to make the perceptual hierarchy grow new twigs, as it were. In the second place, memory is not based on a single abstractive hierarchy, but on a variety of interlocking hierarchies, such as those of vision, taste, and hearing. It is like a forest of separate trees, but with entwined branches, or like our library catalog with cross-references between different subjects. Thus the recognition of a taste is often dependent on cues provided by smell, though we may not be aware of it, but there are more subtle cross-connections. You can recognize a tune played on a violin, although you have previously only heard it played on the piano. On the other hand, you can recognize the sound of a violin, although the last time a quite different tune was played on it. We must therefore assume that the melody and the timber have been abstracted and stored independently by separate hierarchies within the same sense modality, but with different criteria of relevance. One abstracts melody and filters out everything else as irrelevant. The other abstracts the timbre of the instrument and treats melody as irrelevant. Thus, not all the details discarded in the process of stripping the input are irretrievably lost, because details stripped off as irrelevant, according to the criteria of one hierarchy, may have been retained and stored by another hierarchy with different criteria of relevance. The recall of the experience would then be made possible by cooperation of several interlocking hierarchies, which may include different sense modalities, for instance, sight and sound, or different branches, within the same modality. Each by itself would provide one aspect only of the original experience, a drastic impoverishment. Thus, you may remember the words only of the area, your tiny hand is frozen, but have lost the melody, or you may remember the melody only, having forgotten the words, 
Finally, you may recognize Kurosa's voice on a gramophone record without remembering what you last heard him sing. But if two or three of all these factors are represented in the memory store, the reconstruction of their experience and recall will of course be more complete. The process could be compared to multicolor printing by the superimposition of several color blocks. The painting to be reproduced, the original experience, is photographed through different color filters on blue, red, and yellow plates, each of which retains only those filters that are relevant to it, i.e. those which appear in its own color, and ignores all the other features. Then they are recombined into a more or less faithful reconstruction of the original input. Each hierarchy would then have a different color attached to it, the color symbolizing its criteria of relevance. Which memory-forming hierarchies will be active at any given time depends, of course, on the subject's general interest and momentary state of mind. Memory cannot be a store of lantern slides and tape recordings, nor of SR building blocks. So much is evident, but the alternative hypothesis which I gave suggested that memory is dissectable into hierarchies with different criteria of relevance is frankly speculative. However, some modest evidence for it can be found in a series of experiments which James Jenkins and I carried out in the psychological laboratory at Stanford University. Two types of memory. The color printing hypothesis goes some way towards explaining the puzzling phenomenon of recall, but it is based solely on the abstractive type of memory, which alone cannot account for the extreme vividness of the vivid fragments or picture strips mentioned at the beginning of this chapter. After some forty years, I could still hear the voice of the great Austrian actor Alexander Moisi whispering the last words of a dying man, Give me the sun. I have forgotten what the play was about, even its author, it may have been Strindberg, Ibsen, or Tolstoy, except for the hallucinatory clarity of that one fragment torn from its context. Such fragments that have survived the decay of the whole to which they once belonged, like the single lock of hair on the mummy of the Egyptian princess, have an uncanny evocative power. They may be auditory, a line from an otherwise forgotten poem, or a chance remark by a stranger overheard on a bus, or visual, gesture of a child, a mole on a schoolmaster's face, or even referred to taste and smell, like Proust's celebrated Madeleine, a French pastry, not a girl. There exists a method of retention which seems to be the opposite of memory formation in abstractive hierarchies. It is characterized by the preservation of vivid details, which, from a purely logical point of view, are often irrelevant, and yet these quasi-cinematographic details, picture strips, or close-ups, which seem to contradict the demands of parsimony, are both enduring and strikingly sharp, and add texture and flavor to memory. But if these fragments are so irrelevant, why have they been preserved? The obvious answer is that while irrelevant from the point of view of logic, they must have some special emotive significance, which may be conscious or not. Indeed, such vivid fragments are usually described as striking, evocative, nostalgic, frightening, moving, in a word, they are always emotionally colored, thus among the criteria of relevance which decide whether an experience is worth preserving. We have also to conclude emotional relevance. The reason why a particular experience should have this kind of relevance may be unknown to the subject himself. It may be symbolic or oblique. Nobody, not even a computer theorist, thinks all the same in terms of abstractive hierarchies. Emotion colors are all the perceptions, and there is abundant evidence to show that emotional reactions also involve a hierarchy of levels, including some ancient structures in the brain which are phylogenetically much older than the modern structures concerned with abstract conceptualizations. See chapter 16. 
One might speculate that the, in the formation of the picture strip memories, these older primitive levels in the hierarchical play a dominant part. There are some further considerations in favor of such a hypothesis. Abstractive memory generalizations and schematices, while the picture strip particularizes and concretizes, which is a much more primitive method of storing information. Abstractive memory may be compared with insightful learning and picture strip with conditioning. It may also be related to so-called eidetic images. It has been experimentally established that a considerable percentage of children have this faculty. The child is told to fixate his eyes on a picture for about 15 seconds. It is afterwards able to see it projected on an empty screen to point out the exact location of each detail, its color, etc. Eidetic images occupy an intermediary position between the retinal afterimages and what we commonly call memory images. Kluva speaks of these three types of levels of visual memory and seems to imply that they are hierarchically ordered. Unlike afterimages, eidetic images can be produced at will, and after long intervals, even years, they are like hallucinations, except that the child knows that the picture he sees is not real. Though quite common in children, eidetic memory fades with the onset of puberty and is rare among children. Children live in a world of vivid imagery. The eidetic child's way of imprinting pictures on the mind may represent a phylogenetically and ontogenetically earlier form of memory formulation, which is lost when abstractive conceptual thinking becomes dominant. Images and Schemata Leaving eidetics and picture strips aside, when normal adults talk about the memory images and assert that they can literally see a remembered scene or face in their mind's eye, they are usually victims of a subtle form of self-deception. One way of showing this is the Binet-Muller test. The subject is asked to concentrate on a letter square of, say, five rows of five letters each, till he thinks that he has formed a visual image of the square which he can see in his mind's eye. When the square is taken away, he can in fact fluently read out the letters, or so he thinks. But when asked to read the square back to front or diagonally, he will take up to ten times longer. He honestly believes that he has formed visual image, whereas in fact he has learned the sequence by rote. If he could really see the square, he could read it in all directions with equal speed and ease. This fallacy has been known for a long time. One of the earliest students of the subject, Richard Seaman, coined the word neme for memory, wrote half a century ago that visual recall renders only the strongest lights and shadows. In fact, even shadows are usually absent from visual memories, and all but the crudest shades of color. An image is defined as a revived sense experience in the absence of sensory stimulation, but since most details of the experience were lost in the filtering process of memory formation, visual images are much vaguer and sketchier than we are wont to believe. They are skeletonized visual generalizations, outlines, patterns, schemata, abstracted from the original output by several interlocking visual hierarchies, much as the melody, the timbre, voice, and the words are extracted from the Caruso Araya. We use various, often confusing, words for these optic schemata, confusing because visual configurations are not easily translated into verbal terms. Yet the caricaturist can evoke the face of Hitler or Mao by a surprisingly few strokes, which schematize what we call a general impression, adding perhaps a vivid detail by sticking a cigar in Churchill's mouth. When we try to describe a person's face, we use expressions like bony, humorous, brutal, sad. Verbally, each of these attributes is extremely difficult to define. Visually, they are generalizations, stripped of detail, but each definable by a few strokes of pencil. They are perceptual holons.
Recognizing a person does not mean matching his retinal image against the lantern slide in the memory store containing his photographic likeness. It means subjecting the input to a hierarchy of scanning devices which extract from it certain basic configurations. The R-Nessus, so to speak. Several perceptual hierarchies may collaborate in the task. A face or a landscape may have a melody, a timbre, a message, and several other attributes. My attitude to the personal landscape will determine which aspects to be considered as relevant, to be abstracted and stored, which to be filtered out, for purposes of recognition. The melody alone may be sufficient, but the recall of the face in its absence will be the more complete and more branches of the perceptual hierarchy have participated in retaining it. The richer the network connecting them, the more effectively it will be compensated for the impoverishment of experience in the process of storing it. The outstanding memories which some great men are said to have possessed may be due to his multi-dimensional way of analyzing and storing experiences. But for the great majority of people, recall is much less of a pictorial nature than they believe. See the experiment with the letter square. We overestimate the precision of our imagery, as we overestimate the precision of our verbal thinking. Quite often, we think that we know exactly what we want to say, but are. When it comes to putting it on paper, we are unaware of the blurs and gaps in our verbal thinking, as we are unaware of the missing detail, the empty spaces between the visual schemata. Learning by rote. The dullest sort of memory, which I have not mentioned so far, consists of word sequences, which have been learned by rote. But even here we find hierarchic order. The items memorized are not single elementary bits, but larger holons which tend to form patterns, poem learned by heart is given coherence by patterns of rhyme, rhythm, syntax, and meaning, superimposed on each other on the color print principle. The job of memorizing is thus reduced to fitting the patterns together and filling in the gaps as they leave. The same applies to learning a piano sonata, with the structure of the musical holons, the architecture of movements, themes and variations, development and recapitulation, rhythm and harmony, is equally obvious. Where the data to be stored show no apparent cohesion, as in the case of memorizing the dates of battles and reigns, or a string of nonsense syllables. All sorts of mnemonic devices or jingles will be invented to provide some structural pattern. Thus even rote learning is never purely mechanical. A certain amount of stamping in by repetition is often indispensable to provide cohesion. How much stamping in is needed depends on the meaningfulness of the task, and on the subject's capacity for comprehending it. At one extreme there is the dog in the Pavlovian laboratory who needs days or weeks of monotonously repeated experiences to cotton on to the fact that the figure of an ellipse shown on a cardboard signals food, but a circle does not. No wonder, for outside the laboratory, food is not signaled by ellipses or cardboard, and the dog's perceptual hierarchies are not attuned to treating them as relevant events. Similar considerations apply to Thorndike's cats and puzzle boxes and Skinner's pigeons. They are all given tasks to learn for which they lack the native equipment which they can only learn by stamping in. To proclaim this procedure to be the paradigm of human learning was one of the grotesque aberrations of flat-earth psychology. Gestalt theorists, on the other hand, are inclined to equally extreme views of the opposite kind. They would maintain that a true insightful learning excludes all trial and error, and is based on a total understanding of the total situation. In the present theory, Insight and understanding are regarded as matters of a degree and not as the gestalt school holds, an all-or-nothing affair. 
Insight depends on the multidimensional analysis of the input in its various aspects, on extracting relevant messages from the irrelevant noise, identifying patterns in the mosaic until it has become saturated, as it were, with meaning. To sum up, we must assume the existence of multiple interlocking hierarchies of perception which provide the multidimensionality or multiple coloration of experience. In the process of storing memories, each hierarchy strips down the input to bare essentials according to its own criteria of significance. Recalling the experience requires dressing it up again. This is made possible, up to a point, by the cooperation of the hierarchies concerned, each of which contributes those factors which it is deemed worthy preserving. The process is comparable to the superimposition of color plates in printing, or of the wallpaper maker's several stencils, added to this of touches of vivid detail perhaps fragments of eidetic imagery, which carry a strong emotive charge, and the result is a kind of collage, with glass eyes and a strand of genuine hair stuck onto the hazy, schematized figure. It may also happen that fragments of different origin are mistakenly incorporated into the collage, included in the recall of experiences to which they do not belong, for memory is a vast archive of abstracts and curios which are all the time being rearranged and revalued by the archivist. The past is constantly being remade by the present, but most of the making and remaking is not consciously experienced. The canons of perception and memory operate instantaneously and unconsciously. We are always playing games without awareness of the rules.